is A-M-E-N, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. Broadcasting from Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, U-S-A. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show. Weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time for the General, General Cigar, cigar Dave. 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 Ah, taking a sip of my freshly ground and brewed coffee. Need to make sure the vocal cords are operating at 100% today because we have an action-packed show for you today. It could be one of the all-time epic rants. I'm locked and loaded, and I know by saying the term locked and loaded, I'm going to offend a plethora of socialist lib snowflakes. And my answer is outstanding. Because the more that I perturb the snowflakes, the betas, the better I shall feel. I almost feel sorry for when I'm done with whacking the betas, the enemies of free speech. They're going to be crying, going back home to mommy, back down to the basements where they reside. Long-ash greetings and salutations. A long-ash snappy salute. Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. The Global General, five-star general and Alpha male-in-chief front and center from Command Center Alpha. And Command Center Alpha overlooks Tampa International Airport in the Cigar City. And I am looking right now across from the very cozy confines of Command Center Alpha and very luxurious that I'm sure many betas and snowflakes and lib socialists would have a major problem because we have plenty of leather sofas and chairs. We've got massive amounts of TVs using power. We've got a fully stocked bar and humidor. We've got dames that are ready at my beck and call. Oh, they despise the lifestyle of the global alpha male-in-chief. But as I look across right outside the windows of Command Center Alpha, I see a parked and grounded Southwest Boeing 737-8 MAX. And I've received many emails during the course of the week saying, General, you're going to talk about the Boeing situation, the 737 MAX grounding. What's your take as an aviator, as a pilot, And so the second hour, I'm actually going to concentrate on it because much of the reporting initially was wrong. And early on, I had my conclusions, which turned out to be 100% correct. Meanwhile, I hear supposed experts and pilots on Fox and on CNN coming up with all sorts of nonsense saying, oh, it's a training issue and the airplane is perfectly fine. It's a wonderful airplane. Well, there's always more to the story. As Paul Harvey would say, page two. Now, the rest of the story, there's always more to the story. We'll give you a background of the Boeing 737 MAX series and why 
the issues that have caused the crashing of two of those birds occurred. So we'll get to that in the second hour. A little different show. One of the criteria I use for what we're going to discuss on the show is whatever suits me. Whatever comes to mind, if there's a specific subject, whether it is all about the alpha male good life, about alpha male pleasure maneuvers, politics. Every so often we will go into politics. As a refined, worldly, educated, extremely intelligent alpha male, we are prepared, I am prepared, to speak on a variety of subjects. I love when I get emails from people saying, General, just stick to cigars. Well, I hate to tell you this, but I'm far more worldly than just cigars. As alpha males, we are intelligent. We can speak about a multitude of subjects. We engage in free debate about subjects. We are not afraid to tackle any subject or discuss any subject. That's what happens amongst alpha males and women as well at cigar lounges, people enjoying a cigar and a libation. We don't just sit there and say, let's just sit and smoke our cigar and say nothing. We converse in politics, in business, in sports, investment, in dames, in travel, in spirits, in cigars, in dames again. We're just not monolithic in what terms of what we think about. So I got a very interesting, Sergeant Steve and I were discussing earlier this week, some of the items that we were prepared to open the show with. And every so often, in the world of broadcasting, you are given what is called radio gold. You are given a nugget. Just a beautiful, giant, unrefined nugget of gold that plops right on your desk that gives you the opportunity to discuss in detail a subject or an item that is of extreme relevance. And let me give you a background. On Thursday morning, I got some on my phone, I got some bulletins uh, from Twitter. Specifically, some of the news organizations I followed had some news bulletins. So I go to open it up, and all of a sudden, to my surprise, it says, your account has been locked. My Twitter, at Cigar Dave Show, account has been locked. And I said, what the hell? What the hell is this all about? Now, we know that there has been shadow banning. People that have a conservative bent, that are Trump supporters, any political viewpoint in which the libs or the enemies of Trump or the never-Trumpers deem to be inappropriate, they will shadow ban you, they will block you, whatever the case may be. It is a real issue. And I am one that believes highly in the First Amendment. Freedom of speech, not just for my viewpoint, but anybody's viewpoint. If you're a socialist lib, you are entitled to your opinion. You will never hear me say we should stifle whatever the socialists or the liberals have to say. Because as educated alphas, we can easily engage in a rational debate. We can debate somebody we disagree with. I've debated with many people, and by the time I'm done with them, they look around and say, you know, General, you make a good point. Never thought about it. Well, the reality is most socialists don't think about anything because they're not that intelligent. They have to blame everybody else for their problems. Woe is me. I should be given this. It's not fair that I don't have this amount of money or I don't live in this kind of house or don't drive this kind of car or have this hot kind of wife or girlfriend or harem. 
it's always everybody else's fault. It's always negativity. And I've always said, negativity breeds negativity. Every so often, you should purge those people that are in your life that are nothing but Debbie Downers, that are nothing but negative. I don't want to hear it. It's very interesting. There was an interesting study that came out this week asking millionaires, what's the one thing that you believe that you should stay away from or that can cause problems? And they said, one answer, overwhelming, pessimists. You have to remember, people that are successful, like you and I, that are alpha males, that are educated, and you can be successful in whatever chosen profession you, you have. Whether you are a lawyer, you are a doctor, you are an entrepreneur, you are a truck driver, you are a store owner, you are a business person, or a researcher, whatever your chosen profession, it has nothing to do with the remuneration in which you are paid. It, it involves around, are you at the top? Are you at the top of your profession? Do you excel making sure that whatever job you do is always done right and correctly and properly and take pride in your work? It never ceases to amaze me. When we see socialists or we see the enemies of speech, they always have a hard-on in that they've got a problem with somebody else's success, somebody else's happiness. And I've always stated, whenever we look at the enemies of pleasure, at the enemies of free speech, at the socialists, at the ultra-left, the one common denominator they all share, they're all miserable. Deep down, they are unhappy people. They're unhappy with their lot in life. They're unhappy with their job. They're unhappy with their relationships. They're unhappy with their entire world around them. Whereas alphas, and I believe conservatives, Republicans in general, we look at everything as, hey, we're optimists. We believe in what you can do, not what you can't. I'm looking at my cup of coffee here. It is still half full. It's not half empty. But to the libs, the ultra-left, they have to blame everyone else. And what we have seen now over the last year and a half, two years, as President Trump has been in the Oval Office, in the White House, we are starting to see now this movement to restrain free speech. When an enemy of pleasure or a lib, ultra-leftist, a socialist, doesn't like what you have to say, what's the first thing they say? Stop it. Let's protest it. They shouldn't be able to be here. We're seeing it on college campuses. College campuses used to be an incredible, incredible forum for free and active and lively debate. And I always talk about this story. When I was a student at Syracuse University, Jesse Jackson came to speak. I'm not a Jesse Jackson fan. There were people, half the crowd was pro, half didn't care for Jesse Jackson. But I went along with several of my floor mates uh, where I resided in my dorm floor. We all went. Half of us liked Jesse Jackson. Half of us didn't, disagreed with what he had to say. We got tickets. We went. Those of us that disagreed with Jesse Jackson were polite. We didn't try to stop him from speaking. In fact, if anything, I said, I want to go hear what he has to say. And those that were in the crowd that believed in him, it was far civil. People were jumping up and down and cheering. He had a speech. People were polite. That's how it should be. And then afterward, we all went out. We got some pizza at the varsity, and we engaged in some, some civil, highly 
intellectual and intelligent debate. And by the time we done, we all shook hands, went back to our dorm, said, hey, you know what? We learned. That was great. We, we had an opportunity to hear what he had to say, and we engaged in, in debate. That's what this country is all about. That's what the First Amendment is all about. But today we have seen a total 180, a complete change in terms of what people believe should be allowed in the free speech arena. What the libs and the socialists want and what they believe in, if, you don't, if they don't agree with what you have to say, you should be stifled. Why? Because deep down they're insecure of what you have to say. Period. So imagine my surprise on Thursday when I see that my Twitter account has been locked and it says, what happened? We have determined that this account violated the Twitter rules specifically for violating our rules against hateful conduct. You may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. Except, of course, if you are a socialist lib, you can attack whoever you want, and you won't be have your account locked, and you won't be shadow banned in any way, shape, or form. There is an absolute double standard. So what was this tweet that violated the Twitter rules? What did I promote violence against? Who did I threaten? Who did I harass on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease? Well, looking at this, I'm like, I didn't threaten anybody. Well, a tweet was reported to Twitter from July 5, 2015, four years ago, in which I referenced the USA women's soccer team during the World Cup that was held in the summer of 2015. Tweet went out. July 5, 2015, at 7.19 p.m. Here is my exact tweet. USA Dames just dropped another two quick atom bombs on the Japs. Now 4-0 USWNT, which is the hashtag for U.S. women's soccer in first half. Keep unloading the nukes, exclamation point, hashtag World Cup 2015. Let me read this one more time. And again, there were 140 characters, so I had to abbreviate. Instead of saying the Japanese, I said the Japs, short for Japanese. USA Dames just dropped another two quick atom bombs on the Japs. Now 4-0 U.S. women's soccer team in first half. Keep unloading the nukes. Hashtag World Cup 2015. Now, did I promote violence against Japan? Anybody reading this tweet, not even with half a brain, with one one millionth of a brain cell, would look and say, I'm being facetious. I'm using a World War II analogy. Because two quick atom bombs on, on the Japs, meaning two quick goals on the Japanese. Now for nothing. Keep unloading the nukes. Now, nobody in their right mind would look and say, Cigar Dave, the general, is advocating that the U.S. military this moment, on July 5th at 7.19 p.m., unload nuclear bombs on Japan. Not one person who reads this tweet in their right mind. Sergeant Steve, let me ask you. When we discussed this, 
and you saw this tweet, what was the first thing you thought of when you I, – I totally forgot about the tweet, but what was the first thing you thought of when you read that tweet? I thought the Enola Gay was fueling up again. <laughs> Sergeant Steve, you didn't tell me you're a, 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 a dumb beta. I, didn't, I never took you for a, for a dumb beta male that has no brain cells. I said even if you have one one millionth of a brain cell, you know, I mean literally one one hundred billionth of a brain cell, anybody would look at this and say – Hey, he's just using a World War II analogy. He's being facetious. It's a pretty smart analogy, actually. It's clever. It's unique. It's different. Most people wouldn't go there. That's what makes it such a great tweet. Bingo. Very simple. And in fact, I think I got a lot of retweets at the time, and not one person said, how dare you, General, advocating we drop nuclear bombs on Japan. Now, would I advocate dropping nuclear bombs on North Korea and China today? Hell yes! Let's fit there our enemies. Finish them off. Who needs them? But Japan is our ally now. Things have changed since World War II. During World War II, yep, they were our enemy. And if I was alive back then, I would have said, unload every damn nuke we have. If we've got 10, unload them all. They were our enemy. They're not our enemy anymore. China, North Korea, they are our enemies. Period. End of discussion. So on this tweet, so I looked at this and I'm like, God, this is odd. They must have had their bots or something go through it. And then I see a tweet on my timeline. Uh, Sergeant Steve, what's that, uh, what's that, uh, that, that site that we use that amalgamates everything? A Hootsuite. Hootsuite, yes. So I see on Hootsuite that somebody, apparently a Buffalo, I would say listener, because clearly what he said and, and reported this tweet, it says, this came out saying, News Radio 930 host Cigar Dave Show cited for a hateful conduct. Now, whoever this, if they hide, I love people that hide behind a generic, just a generic uh, uh, Twitter account. No picture, no identification, have no idea who the person is. Don't know if it's a woman, don't know if it's a man, have zero clue. Couldn't tell you. Have no idea. Don't really care. And I've always stated, if something doesn't add to my health, wealth, or wisdom, I don't bother with it. But when there's radio gold that is presented to me, I mean, this is just too good to pass up. And so I looked at this thing, and it says an update on your report, because clearly the account that reported this said, thanks again for letting us know. Our investigation found this account violated the Twitter rules. So then all of a sudden, whether this person, again, don't know who it is, whether it's a male or female, because they don't post a picture, they don't put their name, they remain anonymous. And if you want to clean up Twitter with a lot of the nonsense that goes on, make everybody often, uh, uh, authenticate their account. Either send in identification, whatever, and you'd eliminate 90% of the nonsense because then people have to stand by their words. And by the way, I stand by the tweet that I stood. I don't apologize for that. In order to get unlocked, you have to delete the tweet. That is censorship, period. Don't give me this nonsense about promoting violence, threatening to harass people on a facetious, creative tweet. Nothing in it did I say, go kill Japanese. Go drop, uh, literally go drop nuclear bombs. Go out and assassinate or murder somebody from the Japanese female soccer team. In no way, shape was that done, or would I ever do that? So whoever did this clearly is proud and says, oh, I got the general. News Radio 930 host Cigar Dave Show cited for hateful conduct. Well, 
I'm more than just a News Radio 930 host. We're heard on over 160 stations across the country. Nationally syndicated host who's been on 23 going on 24 years. So clearly, we must be doing something right. And clearly, whoever reported this went through my entire Twitter timeline since the time I've been on, I don't know, nine years, something like that, to try to find one tweet that he or she could report. Now think about this. Whoever maintains that account, whatever person, whether they're female, male, have no clue. Their life is so shallow. They have nothing better to do than to go through my entire Twitter timeline of eight years and thousands of tweets. Uh, I'm going to look right now to see how many tweets that we have actually right now because i got to believe it's in the thousands. I've never counted. And sometimes when you look to see how many tweets, it kind of blows you away. You're at 14,700 tweets. All right, 14th, almost 15th. They went through almost 15,000 tweets to find one facetious tweet that they could report to Twitter. Think of how, what a low life they must be. Think of how shallow their life must be. Think about how miserable they must be with their life, their profession, their surroundings, their lot in life. To have to go, I can tell you, I would never, I don't care who it is. They could be the worst enemy. I would never waste my time going through 14,700 tweets, let alone one or five. Why? Because I've got much more to do in my life. I've got many more, more profitable, more engaging, more entertaining, more enjoyable activities than to actually sit and go through somebody's timeline. So whoever did this, male or female, they're probably in their mommy's basement miserable at their lot in life, the fact that they're not successful, the fact that they probably don't have a lot of friends, they probably were the last to get picked when they were in grade school to be on a team, that the only way they can derive any semblance of happiness is to inflict misery upon others. We see this with the libs, the enemies of pleasure. The only way they make themselves happy and get joy in their lives is to inflict misery and unhappiness on others. More when we come back. You, you need to add some alpha to your Facebook news feed. By following The General, you'll get the latest intel in the world of cigars, info on the show each week, and see what The General is smoking. Click like at facebook.com slash Dave. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. 
Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Cigar Dave Officers Club selection for March is a Gurkha sampler, including the Gurkha Ghost. Want these cigars shipped directly to you each month? Log on to CigarDave.com to join the Officers Club. All right, as we continue talking about my hateful speech, the fact that I was cited for hateful conduct by Twitter all over a tweet a facetious, rather creative treat over the women's soccer team in their victory over Japan in 2015. So clearly, I triggered a lib beta snowflake by a tweet about the 2015 U.S. women's soccer team. Now, if that doesn't scream out beta, whether a beta male or female in any way, shape, or form, that they need a safe space because they were hurt by the tweet. Oh, oh, this, oh, we almost need to bring out the master thespian. But I will, I will reserve that. doesn't seem like this is, it could be, though, a Spartacus moment uh, from our good friend Cory Booker. But thinking about this, somebody went through almost 15,000 of my tweets to find one tweet from July 5th of 2015, all over the fact that I used the analogy that the USA women dropped another two quick atom bombs on the Japanese team, and I said, keep unloading the nukes. And this is hateful speech. I'm vile. I'm, this is violence against Japan, against an ethnic group. What a load of nonsense. Load of poppycock. And what we are seeing today is very, very clear. Make no mistake about it. What we are seeing today is an absolute, unadulterated assault on free speech, on, in my estimation, this is the equivalent of a book burning. We see the libs, the, the leftists, if they don't like a position, a policy position, or something that a conservative or somebody that they don't agree with, what they say, what do they do? Let's engage in a boycott. Let's, let's, let's make sure that we boycott this person. Advertiser boycott. Affiliate boycott. Boycott, boycott, boycott. Let's prevent them from speaking. Folks, we have seen the effects of book burn. This goes way back when people on the conservative side said, we need to burn this book. We need to get this out of the library. This is the 21st century equivalent of book burning. Make no mistake. It, I find it very interesting. The conservatives, myself, I never have a problem with what anybody says. If they see, uh, say something, it is my right to rebut it. I don't call for advertiser boycotts, and I don't care if they did. It makes no difference to me. Because this is another thing that probably rankles the people that disagree with my political views, disagree with my views on being an alpha male. What rankles them is the fact that we have a successful program that we're heard on over 160 stations and have been for over 23 years, that this program is successful by any metric. They hate that. They hate the fact that I have listeners that attend, that not only listen on a regular basis across the world, 
but that they attend our Pleasure Fest event from different walks of life. We have white collar, blue collar. We have wealthy income, high income, moderate income. We have, we have lower income. We have people that aren't millionaires, or as Bernie Sanders would say, billionaires, zillionaires, gazillionaires, billionaires. We have people from every part of the country, from every profession. And the great thing is when they attend our Pleasure Fest, we're all the same. Everybody there is, is, is in attendance to enjoy themselves. They're happy. You attend one of our Pleasure Fests, everybody has smiles on their faces. Everybody engages in great conversation. You see people sitting at tables where I'll walk around and, and greet people. And I'm like, oh, you guys all know each other? They said, General, we just met, but hey, you know what? I'm going to be down in uh, Houston, or I'm going to be down to Pittsburgh, and I'm going to visit. We're going to go to a cigar place. We're going to go have drinks after. There are numerous people that attended our events from out of town, whether it's in Tampa or Buffalo or any other location, that said, hey, you know what? We're all going out to dinner after. We all became buddies. We're going to go to dinner and then have cigars and some spirits. Happy people. This is what rankles the enemies of pleasure, the wussified betas. This is what rankled whomever, male or female, hid behind or is hiding behind a Twitter account with no picture, with no name, saying, I'm going to get the general. I'm going to find one tweet from 2015 where he attacked, in a facetious way, the Japanese by saying, let's drop nuclear bombs after the USA women's soccer team scored. Now think about this. This person is so miserable in their own life that they have ample amounts of time to go through 14,700 of my tweets. Most people would look and say, eh, who cares? Oh, no. This person made sure they went to report it. And believe me, it makes no difference to me. Keep doing it. I could care less. If you think that I live and die by Twitter or social media, you got another thing coming. They despise the fact that we're successful. They despise the fact that we as alpha males are enjoying ourselves, that we're happy. They despise the fact that we are extremely intelligent, far more intelligent than they are. And I will guarantee you that the people that have a problem with someone's speech, with someone's opinion, those people are probably very unsuccessful probably miserable in their own lives, their personal lives, their professional lives. They probably haven't attained the modicum of success that they think they deserve. They probably don't make the kind of money they think they deserve. They probably don't have hot girlfriends or boyfriends that they think they deserve. They probably have no fun. They probably have a very small circle, social circle. So consequently, the only way that they derive pleasure is to attack others. And what we are seeing today, without any question, is now an assault on free speech. This is modern-day book burning, make no mistake. This is political correctness that has gone absolutely off the rails. And I'll give you a perfect example. Martina Navratilova, very good tennis player. I remember back when she and Chris Everett used to go at it, some great matches. Martina Navratilova came out and said she's gay. Okay, who cares? Do what you want. You want to have sex with them. If you're a man and want to have sex with a man, you're a woman that have sex with a woman, be my guest. If I want to have a harem, my, my right, no problem. I believe let people live their lives. And what I find very interesting is the ultra-socialist libs are the ones that jump up and down and say, we believe in freedom of choice. The women have the right 
to choose for themselves what they want to do with their body. And I'm not getting into a uh, Roe v. Wade discussion here because I don't want to get into it. I don't care. Personally, you know my beliefs. People should live the life they want to live. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to go into their bedroom. I don't want to go into their uterus. Well, I shouldn't necessarily say that. We'll keep it clean. But I don't want to interfere. It's not my business. I don't care. All I care about is living my life, being happy. I don't need to meddle in other people's lives for happiness as opposed to the socialist libs that are miserable. So what do they always say? Women have the right to choose. Okay, fine. Fine. And what's the first thing that the enemies of pleasure, the socialists, the libs, what's the first thing they go after? The right to choose. The right to choose to smoke a cigar, the right to enjoy a libation, the right to enjoy and shoot firearms for sport. They want to interfere. The right to free speech. They're all for freedoms except when it goes against their own beliefs. In that case, they want to suppress other people's right to free speech, right to own a gun, right to enjoy a cigar, right to enjoy spirits. And we're seeing that with keep raising the age to smoke a cigar, to drink, but meanwhile they want to lower the voting age. I'll get to that later. That's another subject. But Martina Navratilova, perfect example of the suppression of free speech today, not only in the United States but around the world. Martina Navratilova wrote a column back in February in the London Sunday Times newspaper in which she argued it was cheating to allow transgender women to compete in female competition because they would benefit from unfair physical advantages. She said a man can decide to be female, take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization is concerned, win everything in sight, and perhaps earn a small fortune, and then reverse his decision and go back to making babies if he so desires. She says it's insane and it's cheating. I'm happy to address a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. Now, that's her opinion. I personally agree with her opinion. The science agrees with that, that if you go from being a male to a female and compete in female competition, you have a scientific advantage. That is indisputable. Now, of course, the LGBTQY, LMNOP, all these other organizations have a big problem because they perceive that as transphobic. The U.S. organization Athlete Ally, which supports the rights of LGBT sports people, immediately cut ties with Martina Navratilova, saying the comments she made were transphobic. And I believe that uh, Navratilova sat on the board or was an advisor. So what happens? This group disagrees with what she says. All of a sudden says, transphobic, we don't want her associated with us. So now people are not entitled to their opinion. Fact. Here's another one that's even more ridiculous. Robert Francis O'Rourke, Bozo O'Rourke. First of all, the guy's spastic hand movements are irritating as hell. The guy's jumping on tables. He's, he's taking his hands up, down, right, around. It's irritating as hell. Something is wrong with this guy. There's no doubt about it. Reading some of what he wanted to do in the past, the guy is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But he was on the campaign trail, and... He had made a really, a relatively innocuous statement. I mean, something that was really, 
you know, he's talking about his family, joked on the campaign trail that his wife has been raising their children sometimes with my help. Now, that's a comment that many people would make. Hey, listen, I'm here traveling. You know, my wife's doing all the work. He said that, and I'm not a beta, a, a, a wussified Beta O'Rourke fan in any way, shape, or form. But what I am in favor of is free speech. The right to make a comment, whether it is a facetious comment, a joking comment, without being called on the carpet for it. So what did he say? On the campaign trail, he says, his wife has been raising their children sometimes with my help. Okay. All of a sudden, there is an uproar. All these PCers, all these enemies of free speech, all these socialist Dems and libs jumped up and down saying that what he said was an outrage. This is unacceptable. And he comes out, and instead of saying, look, I was joking, get over it, get a life. No. Instead, he has to kowtow to these people, these losers. And he said he'll be more thoughtful when talking about his family. He said, and I quote, not only will I not say that again, but I'll be more thoughtful going forward in the way that I talk about our marriage. My ham-handed attempt to try to highlight the fact that Amy has the lion's share of the burden in our family, that she actually works but but is the primary parent in our family, especially when I served in Congress, especially when I was on the campaign trail, should have also been a moment for me to acknowledge that it is far too often the case, not just in politics, but just in life in general. I hope as I have been in some instances part of the problem, I can also be part of the solution. Oh, please. How about just saying... I was kidding. I was joking. But you can't do that today anymore. Because what we have find of these snowflakes get triggered by anything that you say. If you say to one of these snowflakes, good morning, and they woke up and it's miserable or they don't feel well, they're looking at you saying, no, it's not a good morning, and I'm offended. You've triggered me. I need a safe space. This is how absurd it has become. So I am happy. I am thrilled. I look at it as a badge of honor that I triggered some lib socialist snowflake somewhere in the Western New York theater of operations who's hiding behind a Twitter account. I am thrilled that I was able to set him or her off in such a manner that they, the only way they derive pleasure is to try to report one of my tweets for BS hateful conduct, which is total nonsense, to Twitter. I think it's amusing. I think it's entertaining. As soon as I saw this, many people would say, oh, my God, what's going to happen? I said, Radio Gold, baby, you have given me, this person gave me a giant nugget to expose exactly how truly weak and pathetic and how low they must feel in their lives. To a degree, I'd say I almost pity the poor bastard or bastards, but I don't. I don't. Because the only thing you and I have to worry about is making sure that we're happy. We are responsible for our own happiness. And when we see a triggered socialist lib loser that thinks that because sending out a tweet saying, oh, News Radio 930 WBEN host Cigar Dave Show cited for hateful conduct, I laugh. And I say that is beautiful. Because I don't live and die by social media. I don't spend all day on it. I don't give a damn how many followers I have. I don't give a damn who likes my tweets, whether you like it or not. I tweet for one reason. I express my opinion. And if you are a snowflake that's triggered, too effing bad. I don't really care. Go back to your mommy or your daddy's basement. 
Go back to living in your underwear or in your little nightie. Go back to your loser lifestyle. Go back to reviewing all of my tweets and all those people that you disagree with. Go and review every one of their tweets. Go lament on how miserable your boring loser life is, that you're not successful, that you probably haven't achieved a lot in life, that you probably don't have, as I said, the, the, the entrapments of success that you deem you should have. Go back to making other people miserable, specifically yourself, because that's really what it all boils down to. I believe 100% in free speech. If I disagree with someone, I am happy and eager to debate them. I don't need to report their tweet to Twitter or to Facebook. I don't have to cry and be triggered and go to a safe space. I look at them and go, ha, ha, ha. I pity you poor bastards because you are losers. And this alpha is not only a winner, a successful winner, but the worst thing that they hate more than anything, I am happy. And they despise that. We as alphas, we are successful. We are happy. We enjoy life. We love great cigars. We love our meat. We're not vegans and proud of it. That's another thing they despise, the fact that we're not vegans. We don't give a damn about climate change because we know it's a load of poppycock. We'll continue driving our gas-guzzling SUVs. We'll continue taking airplanes everywhere because we know it's all about our happiness. Anything else? Be damned. Never miss a minute of the show when you download the Cigar Dave mobile app for Apple, Android, and Kindle devices. You can listen to our 24-7 continuous stream of the latest show or download the recent podcasts to listen to anytime on your mobile device. Get the Cigar Dave mobile app in the App Store. Search Cigar Dave. As avid cigar connoisseurs, there is nothing like getting a brand new cigar that you have never sampled before in your hands and being able to cut, light, and enjoy that cigar. And the best way for you to get a great variety of cigars every month is to become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club. $22.95 per month gets you the latest and greatest in the world of cigars to you every month. And for March 2019, we're featuring two great cigars from Gurkha. First up, the Gurkha Marquesa. Talk about a Cuban-esque pre-embargo type cigar in look and in taste. The Gurkha Marquesa is it. A beautiful earthy Sumatra wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan fillers, a bold, well-balanced, medium-bodied and spicy cigar. Then we've got the Gurkha Ghost. If you want a Brazilian-wrapped, bold cigar, the Gurkha Ghost. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club right now. Go to CigarDave.com and join to get great cigars like the Gurkha Marquesa and the Gurkha Ghost. America is under attack. Basic freedoms, privileges, and acts that we would normally take for granted are disappearing each day, including the simple ability to enjoy a cigar. This is Glenn Loop, Executive Director of Cigar Rights of America, CRA. At a time when elected officials should be thinking about education, public safety, and creating jobs, they are actually thinking about smoking bans, new taxes, and regulations of historic proportions on premium cigars. The cigars that provide us with pleasure, relaxation, and fellowship are under attack. We have to stop it. That's why Cigar Rights of America was created, to work for a new political day for cigar enthusiasts across America, to roll back restrictive laws and defeat onerous taxes and regulations that impact everyone from your local cigar shop to your personal humidor. 
For the price of a few great cigars, be a part of this effort to protect your right to enjoy a cigar without excessive taxation and cumbersome legislation. Go to CigarRights.org. Let's tell the government we've had enough. Join now, CigarRights.org. With an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy, it's time for National Cigar Litation Maneuvers. All right, before I get ready to tell you about my cigar, a couple of things. First up, yesterday, the birthday of Cigar Mother Piera and my canine, Pendragon's Royal Baron. He is one or was one yesterday. And also yesterday would have been the 93rd birthday of the great Ava Uvesian. And the music we play during the litation and libation ceremony right now is a work he composed called Caribe. Also, this past Wednesday, Puff Muffin Lori celebrated her birthday. And I have a cigar in microphone position number two that will go unsmoked, and that is to... Pay tribute to the memory of a longtime friend of the Cigar Dave show that passed away last Saturday right after the show ended. Brady Fisher, the owner of Brady's Backyard Barbecue in Safety Harbor, right across from the Cigar City of Tampa. He's been on the show many times. We've talked about barbecue. We've had him at the Pleasure Fests in Buffalo and also here in Tampa. He had a uh, about a four-month illness and passed away. And I know it was a very difficult uh, few months for Brady. He was a wonderful gentleman, loved his barbecue, always was extremely hospitable, and his wife, uh, Joanne, will continue that tradition. So if you have a chance, go into Brady's Backyard Barbecue in Safety Harbor, right down the street from the Safety Harbor spot. Tell them the general sent you, and tell them that you're paying tribute to the great Brady Fisher, and may he rest in peace. I've just pulled out, in honor of Avo, a brand new cigar that is being released for a limited time. It is the Avo Improvisation LE19. Coming out right in honor of uh, Avo's birthday, a 6x52 box press Toro, Ecuadorian wrapper, Dominican binder, Dominican Peruvian fillers, $15 cigar, 2,500 boxes of 20 cigars. That is it. Just a limited edition. It is a beautiful stick. That's what I will enjoy today. I've got in my hands my, where is it, my self-sharpening double-edged stainless steel guillotine, and from the Cigar Dave R&D Laboratories, got my big litation device, the Mala Make America Lightate again. We need to do one that says, make the enemies of pleasure ticked off again. We need to do a litation device like that, and now I am ready. Cigar, Cigar pre-litation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. Perfect cut. I will toast the foot of this cigar. And as I do so, I've got Pendragon's Royal Baron, my canine here. Celebrated his first birthday. Cigar mother, a happy belated... Well, yesterday was her birthday. I appropriately called her on her birthday. No ifs, ands, or buts. And make sure she had a special delivery with a special cake. And I know that Puff Muff and Lori, XO Tim, and Cigar Mother Piera celebrated earlier this week with a very fine dinner. As I puff and rotate, mm. I've got some Tullamore Dew Caribbean rum cash that I'm going to pour. Mm. Perfect libration 
23 bucks. You can't go wrong. Very, very smooth. Hour number two is next. I'll give you my analysis of the Boeing 737 MAX big problems. This is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. from Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, USA. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show, your weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time. For the General, General Cigar, Cigar Dave. As I puff my Avo Improvisation LE19 Limited Edition Cigar and take another sip of my Tula Mordu Caribbean Cask Finish Whiskey, I guarantee you I have just triggered the enemies of pleasure. I have triggered the enemies of cigars, the enemies of libations, the enemies of happiness, and I couldn't be more thrilled. As a, as the leader, the undisputed leader of the alpha male lifestyle, that includes cigars, spirits, diversions, dice, dames, grilling, meat, harems, anything that I can do to enjoy myself, enjoy the alpha male pleasure and lifestyle, I do. Anyone else, be damned. Big mistake I see people make, they live their lives for other people. They live their lives for what other people think or say. Who cares? Their response, their thoughts are irrelevant. You must be happy. And that's the thing that really drives, again, the betas and enemies of pleasure crazy is because as alpha, alpha males that enjoy the alpha male good life, they despise that. They can't figure out how, why we're so happy, why we enjoy our lives when they're so miserable. So I say, keep enjoying all the great elements of the alpha male lifestyle. Now, this hour is going to be a little bit different in that we're not going to talk about the alpha male lifestyle. We're not going to talk about the assault on the alpha, uh, alpha males. We're not going to talk about the assault on free speech. But I had a number of emails from people saying, General, what did you think about the 737? What's your opinion? A lot of people wanted to hear it. And as I said, I have, whenever people ask me, well, what's, the, you know, what's your show about? My answer is whatever I deem it to be about. If today we want to talk about politics, we do that. We primarily spend it around the alpha male pleasure lifestyle. But every so often there are topics in which I am familiar and well-versed and knowledgeable. And therefore I will spend time on discussing it. And today is one of those days. The Boeing 737 MAX, there have been two crashes. Now, I've had people saying, you got to discuss it. I'm an aviator. I'm a pilot. I have been flying for a long time since college uh, as a pilot. And I can tell you that I follow one of the areas that I follow on a regular basis is aviation. I love aviation. To this day, when I'm lining up for takeoff, as the pilot in command, of Alpha Army One, I still watch the planes take off and land, and I know the physics behind it. I know why an airplane flies, 
the relationship of the wind and pressure to wings, the control surfaces. I know everything about why an airplane flies, but I am still amazed watching planes take off and land. And it goes back to when my father would take me to, as a little kid, in his convertible to the greater Buffalo International Airport, and at the end of the runway, he would lift me up on his shoulders and we'd watch the airplanes take off and land. And from then, I had just an incredible love affair with aviation, with flying, which has uh, uh, remains to this day, if not more so than ever. In fact, in a few weeks, we'll be doing broadcast maneuvers from the Sun and Fun, the 2019 Sun and Fun Air Show in Lakeland, Florida, which comes up uh, just a couple of weeks from now, the second largest air show in the country behind the uh, 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 air venture up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So we will be talking aviation then. But I want to talk about the 737, because one of the things that people have been discussing when I go out to various places and we're enjoying a cigar or talking about, about politics or life, people are talking about the 737. What is going on? Boeing for many years made reliable airplanes. The old adage with pilots was, if it's not Boeing, I'm not going. My, my, have things changed in a matter of months. So I'll give you my take on the 737 accidents. And I saw a number of pilots. There was a retired airline pilot that was on Fox, oh, about uh, a week or so ago. And he said, this is all about training. These pilots didn't know what was going on. The airplane is fine. He didn't know what he was talking about. Because there's always more to the story. The 737 MAX is not the 737s that have preceded it. So I'm going to take some time to go through exactly the background of the 737, the rivalry between Airbus and Boeing, and how we got to where we are today with a plane that is grounded. And as I look from my broadcast facilities here at Command Center Alpha, I am looking at a grounded Southwest Boeing 737 MAX. We'll send out a picture of that. It is sitting there. It has sat there since the president last week grounded the fleet. And the question is, where was the FAA? Where was the Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chow? Talk about a Washington, D.C. swamp rat. She's married to Mitch McConnell. Elaine Chow has served in umpteen administrations, going way back even before the Bush, I think the first Bush administration, and how Trump ever nominated her to be the Secretary of Transportation is beyond me. I think he tried to kill two birds with one stone. She had been the Deputy Secretary of Transportation, and I think he figured, okay, I'll throw Mitch McConnell a bone, and this way we'll get off to a good relationship. No such joy. She's incompetent shouldn't be in the cabinet, should not be the Secretary of Transportation. As we have learned, the FAA delegated much of the certification authority to Boeing directly. And when all this stuff was going on, when we're seeing issues about the flight control system, the FAA was nowhere to be found. Where were the airlines? If I'm the CEO of the airlines, if I am the CEO of American or Southwest or United, I don't need the FAA to tell me ground those airplanes, ground those birds. I want to know what the hell's going on. Well, let's go through a background because it's too simplistic to say, well, there's just a problem with one of the systems on the airplane, their uh, MCAS system. Too simplistic. So I'm going to give you a background. We could say, oh, we have to change their maneuvering characteristics augmentation system. Now, that may mean nothing to you, and I'll explain everything in layman's terms. But let's go back 
to the original Boeing 737-100. Goes back to 1968. Now, the 727, the Boeing 727, really revolutionized air travel. That was the first... Boeing had always made airplanes, but you had the... Douglas Aircraft Corporation with the DC-2, the DC-3. The DC-3 changed everything. That was really the first workhorse of a commercial airliner in this country. Safe airplane, revolutionized air travel. And then you had the DC-4, the DC-5, the DC-6, the DC-7. Then you had the jet age, the DC-8, and the DC-9. But Boeing with the 707 changed things. But the 727 was a really a revolutionary plane. Three engines, had an exit stair system where you could, uh, d- d- the plane passengers through an air stair, a workhorse, a great airplane. The pilots that flew the 727 swear by that airplane. They also swear by the DC-9. They love that airplane. They said it is a pilot's airplane. You have the feel. You, you, it's just an, a, a pilot's airplane all the way around. So let's go to 1968, the introduction of the first Boeing 737-100. It was designed initially for air carriers, specifically for European carriers in West Germany, for Lufthansa, Lufthansa, as a short-hop commuter jet early in the Cold War. And one of the advantages of the 737, it was designed, and this is, remember, before there were jetways. Before there were jetways, you had to have an air stair come up to the airplane, which took time. You had people going up and down the air stair, and you remember those. You still see them on occasion now when, when sports teams are arriving for the Super Bowl or for the college football championship, and you see them coming down the charter airplane. They're coming down an air stair. It was before jet, uh, the, 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 really the invention of the jetway. So Boeing wanted to create an airplane that had a built-in set of folding metal stairs attached to the fuselage, built in, so passengers could get entry and exit from the airplane very simple. It cut down on times. A lot of the airlines said that is revolutionary, that is great. So how did Boeing do that with the 737 to be able to do that? Well, they were able to do that by keeping the fuselage relatively low to the taxiway or the runway. You couldn't have it so high where you'd need, you know, a 30 foot uh, 30 feet of stairs to come down. The Boeing, if you look at the original 737s, the 100, the 200, the 300, even the 7 and 800s, when you look at them, they're low to the tarmac by design. And the first 737-100 had Pratt & Whitney, what they call straight pipe engines. They weren't ultra-high bypass turbofan engines. They were a straight turbojet, very fuel inefficient, very noisy. They looked like little thin Tubes, almost cigars. People said they looked like like two metal cigars that were underneath the wing. So they designed an airplane in 1968, well over 50 years ago, specifically as an airplane to be able to work on short hops, capacity of about 100, 110 passengers, built-in stairway, very efficient, low to the ground, easy to maneuver, and it did a great job. And remember, back in those days, there were no baggage motorized belt loaders to load and unload baggage like you see now by the airplanes where they basically put it on a conveyor and it takes it right up. Back then, they had to manually do it. So they were able to also design the cargo door very low to the ground, made it very easy. So we have a, an airplane that was designed in 1968. 
Okay? Got an airplane that was designed in 1968, over 50 years old. A low-to-the-ground design was great in 1968. But all of a sudden, in 2011, when Boeing engineers had to design a new airplane to compete against Airbus, it was not so great. Now, this brings me to the next point. Boeing had long been interested in creating a new airplane. You had the Airbus A320, which really put the Airbus program in Europe on the map. Because really by then, it was, before then, it was Boeing. You had the 727, the 737, the 757, which was a phenomenal airplane. Again, comfortable from a passenger's perspective. Big airplane, nice wide cabin, sits high on the ground. If you look at a Boeing 757, it's not like the original 737. It sits high off the ground. It looks like it wants to fly just sitting, not moving. Big engines, just a very efficient airplane. When it came out originally, and that, that plane now is almost 40 years old, very, very efficient. Tech, the technology on the flight deck state of the art. Big Rolls-Royce RB211 turbofan engines. And again, the difference between a straight pipe engine, a turbojet, and an RB or a, a ultra-high bypass turbofan engine is the fact that it pushes a tremendous amount of air, which allows it to be more fuel efficient and deliver more, more power. That's why when you see on a on these 757s, the 767s, the 777s, the 787s, big engines. Why? Because they move a tremendous high volume of air. And going back, the first high-bypass turbofan engine was the Rolls-Royce RB211. Revolutionary game-changer. It, it bankrupt Rolls-Royce, but it really was a great engine. Very fuel-efficient, a lot of power. In fact, my favorite airplane, ah, Sergeant Steve, we can hear it lining up right there. Take, take a listen to this RB211 on an L1011, which I'll get to in a minute. Listen to this thing on takeoff. Listen to this thing purr. Now you're at max power because you can hear that buzz sound on that Rolls-Royce RB211 Ultra High Bypass. Listen to this, baby. And you can even hear the sounds, the bumps, the rattling of that L1011 rumbling and stumbling down that runway. Greatest airplane designed in my estimation. Lockheed set the bar on that L1011. It was a pilot's pilot's airplane, big cabin for passengers, big flight deck, first airplane that had auto takeoff and auto land. Listen to that, man. Oh, just that sweet hump. Now, we're going to get to the importance of the ultra high bypass turbofan engine with the 737 MAX in just a moment. But for many years, Boeing, they were the king. And Airbus came out with the A300 Eastern Airlines, the first delivery customer, but they really didn't set the world on fire with it. But then you had the A320 program. The A320 program, the Airbus A320, launched in 1989. And all of a sudden, Airbus starting the technology on that airplane off the charts, fly-by-wire, meaning no mechanical controls, computer Basically, it flies by electronic impulses, which control these uh, the control surfaces. 
Just a beautiful flight deck, all all uh, glass, what they call cockpit, no analog gauges. A lot of auto redundancy on there, auto thrust, auto, the autopilot, auto land. I've got about 80, 90 hours in the A320 and A330 simulators. And I can tell you that it is a wonderful airplane to fly. Handles nicely, big engines, lots of power, a lot of automation on that airplane. A lot of automation. The key, though, is you still have to have as a pilot, as an aviator, stick and rudder skills. And that will come into play as we talk about the 737 MAX in just a little bit. So even if you're a pilot, you've got all this automation, you've got all this technology, you still must be able to fly the airplane when the systems are failing, when there's no auto, uh, auto throttles or auto thrust, when the auto land's not working, when there's an autopilot problem. As an aviator, as a pilot, you still must be able to fly that airplane. And I've had several instances. I was not getting on my autopilot. I was getting an issue, had an issue with the autopilot. Wasn't holding altitude, was bobbing up and down. Disengaged the autopilot, pulled the breakers, flew the airplane manually back from West Palm Beach to the cigar city of Tampa. Wasn't phased by it because as an aviator, you must maintain those stick and rudder skills. And with all the technology, sometimes it can be easy for a pilot to say, hey, look, we take off, get to 200 feet, turn the autopilot on, 200 feet uh, above ground before we land, disengage the autopilot. You're flying that airplane for a total of one minute. I like to hand fly Alpha Army 1 to altitude. Whatever the altitude is, I like to hand fly it. I like to keep my stick and rudder skills sharp because you never know when you're going to need them. Yes, the autopilot can do it, but I like doing it. And plus, I like the feel of my hand on that yoke. I like the feel of flying that airplane. I like feeling just the, just the, the, the solid airplane in my hands and in my control. But Airbus in 1989 came out with the A320, and they made big inroads. They got a big order from United Airlines, from U.S. Air. Boeing had many of those airlines locked up. They were it. They had the monopoly. Airbus changed everything in 1989. In 1997, Boeing came out with a 737NG, the next generation. They had these 700, 800, 900. More fuel-efficient engines, some technology. And Boeing started to close the gap between the Airbus A320 and the 737 next generations. But in 2006, this is very important, Airbus launched the A320 Enhanced Program, and they came out with the A320neo, next engine option. What they were able to do, because it was a newer airplane that was designed only in 1989, so 17 years after, it sat high on the ground, they were able, with engine upgrades, aerodynamic improvements, with weight savings, new cabin design, they were able to bring the cost down of operating that airplane on a seat per seat mile basis of an excess of 15, almost 20%. Now, when you go to an airline that's spending billions on fuel and say, we can save you 15 to 20% legitimately on fuel, if an airline spends a billion dollars, that's 150 to $200 million to the bottom line. You better believe the airlines are going to take note. Now, Boeing had been lax. Boeing was looking at creating a brand new, what they call clean sheet design. When I say clean sheet, what that means is Boeing was going to start from scratch, create a new fuselage, get the latest in engines, latest technology. They weren't going to have any commonality with the 737s or some of the other airplanes. 
They were going to create a brand new airplane, new design from from a from a clean sheet of paper all the way up to the airplane being built. Brand new design. And they started looking at it. Cost on a new design, about $10 billion. But Boeing was getting leaped in orders because people were saying, uh, airlines were saying, wait a minute, we'll take the A320neos. We'll save 15 20%, and we don't have to wait more than a couple of years. A new clean sheet design, you're looking at certification seven, eight years. So what did Boeing do? They started to panic. They were losing market share. So they talked to a lot of their existing customers, and they went to their customers and said, what if we could create the same 737, but give you the same better fuel efficiency? We could give you 12, 15% fuel efficiency, 20% like the Airbus. Well, the airlines like Southwest and American said, absolutely. They're already in our fleets. Southwest runs the largest fleet of 737s in the world. They wouldn't have to train new pilots to, to transition to that airplane. There would just be some minor tweaks. So Boeing got to work on it on their 737 MAX program, and they came out with an airplane that had initially bigger engines, some design improvements, but maintained the commonality with the other 737, so a pilot wouldn't need a new type endorsement. Anytime a pilot wants to fly an airplane over 12,500 pounds, they must have what is called a type rating for a specific airplane. So if you were a pilot on the 737, and all of a sudden, the airline promotes you to, uh, let's say, a captain on a 787. You can't just go into that cockpit and say, great, I'm ready to fly the airplane. You need a type rating. You go through a month of ground school, maybe longer. You go through two, three weeks, maybe 40, 50 hours in the simulator. And then once you get your type rating, you then fly the line with a Czech airman who oversees you, who's also a captain who oversees you for... 10, 15, 20 hours until he signs you off, you or uh, him or her off. But with a 737, you don't need that because it has commonality. But there were some issues when it came to the 737 MAX, specifically the engines and the fuel savings. So when we come back, we will continue this discussion on why the 737 MAX has turned out to be a bad bird. We're giving it to you in layman's terms. The General is now on Instagram. Follow him for pictures of the latest cigars, libations, and what he's enjoying during the show. <laughs> that could be interesting, and we'll have to block out some faces. Go to Instagram and search Cigar Day. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. 
to Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Learning to fly, love to fly. A little different tact in this hour of the Cigar Dave Show. Talking about the Boeing 737 MAX disaster. And as I look out from Command Center Alpha, I see a grounded Southwest Boeing 737 MAX. Boeing on multiple levels. At fault, negligent, bordering on criminal. On what they did and what they did not do with the certification design and what they told pilots. So I'm going to give it to you very basic. We left off talking about the fact that Boeing was late to the party. Airbus had already come out with their A320neo, their new engine option, 15% plus fuel efficiency. And whenever you talk to airlines about fuel efficiency, they get very excited because fuel is their number primarily their number one cost right behind labor. And in some instances, it can exceed labor. So they were looking for an option. So Boeing comes to the party late and tells airlines, look, we have got a new version of the 737 that we are going to come up with. We're going to design better, more fuel-efficient engines, cost savings, and here's the best part, airlines. It's a 737, so consequently, you don't have to retrain all your pilots. In theory, it sounds great. But realistically, for Boeing to be able to create that airplane, they had some issues they had to deal with. Remember, the Boeing 737 was over 50 at the time. It was a 40-plus-year-old airframe, sat low to the ground. Now, to put a new engine on there, on the next generation, they put an engine on that had a 61.8-inch fan. And the one thing we've talked about when it comes to turbofan engines, ultra-high bypass turbofan engines, to get fuel efficiency, you've got to suck a ton of air into that core of that engine. The more air you can suck around it and in it, the more fuel efficient and quiet that engine operates. So initially, in order for Boeing to make that 737 MAX series more fuel efficient, it needed a completely different engine. So they went to CFM International. And they went with the Leap-1B engine. Now, here's the problem with that Leap-1B engine. It had a 69.4-inch, we'll call it a 69.5-inch fan diameter. So all of a sudden, you've got a bigger fan diameter. And remember, you've got low clearance. You have to have at least 17 inches of clearance from the bottom of that engine to the tarmac or to the ground. Well, Boeing had an issue. First, they had a design issue. They had the engines. 
more fuel efficient. But then they had an issue. They couldn't get that clearance on an, on a, a 50 plus year or 40 at the time, 40 plus year old airframe. So what did Boeing have to do to accommodate that engine? They had to raise the height of the fuselage. And in order to be able to get that engine to fit, they had to raise the fuselage and also move the engine forward to accommodate the engine nasal. So all of a sudden, you are changing all of a sudden the aerodynamics of that airplane because you're raising it. How do you raise it? You have to increase, you have to bring up the front landing gear by, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, eight inches. That makes a big difference on the airplane. So you got to raise the nose gear then you have to move the engines in order to accommodate a much larger fan. You have to move them forward of the wing, uh, on the wing, and you have to raise them higher. All of a sudden, you got yourself a different airplane. It's not a 737 anymore. So what happens? They go out to test the airplane to get certification. Now, in order to get that airplane to be in a safe condition, when they found out that when you apply a lot of power on that airplane, there can be a tendency, because again, the engine sits higher and more forward, that all of a sudden that nose is going to want to climb up. It's going to want to climb. It's going to want to get to, a, to an unsafe angle of attack. And when we talk about an angle of attack on a wing, in order for a wing to fly, you must have airflow over the wing. There's a, a percentage of low pressure to high pressure above and below the wing. And what happens is as you raise the nose, you have more power, you still have airflow. But if you keep raising that nose, there comes a point of diminishing return where you're not going to keep flying anymore. You're going to get burble. You're not going to have the air flowing around those wings, and you get into what is called an aerodynamic stall. The engine doesn't stall, but the airplane wing stalls, meaning the airplane doesn't have enough lift to fly anymore. Now, as aviators, we practice that all the time. We learn how to stall an airplane, how to recover from a stall, how to avoid a stall, especially... When you are low and slow to the ground, takeoff and landing configurations, excess banking, low speed, high angle of attack, all recipes for disaster. That goes back to stick and rudder skills, learning how to fly your airplane. The one thing pilots hate are surprises. In training, we learn about the characteristics. For example, in my flight training, which I do recurrently every six months, not only in a simulator but also in the actual airplane, we get into slow flight at high altitudes, so that we know exactly what the plane feels like when you have a high angle of attack. You can still fly that airplane right on the edge of a stall, but you need to know when it's going to be an impending stall and how to recover, get the nose down from a stall. So Boeing had a design issue. They had these big engines. The only way they could accommodate it is to increase the, the nose gear and move those engines higher and more forward on the wing. It changed the aerodynamic flight characteristics of the airplane completely. So how did they deal with that airframe problem? They couldn't design the whole airframe right from the beginning, so they came out with something called MCAS, Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, MCAS. And what MCAS did behind the scenes, unbeknownst to pilots, because they weren't informed about the system, they weren't told about it during training, the airlines didn't know about it, 
because Boeing wanted to maintain the commonality, the type rating. They didn't want pilots have to going in that have to go into the simulator for additional training. That was one of their big selling points to the airlines. We can keep your costs down. This isn't a new airplane. It's technologically advanced, more fuel efficient, lower operating costs. But it has commonality with the other 737s. You don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars of sending your pilots to your training center. Put them up in hotels and per diem meals and other expenses. Great selling point. One problem. It was a different airplane when the MCAS system was put on. When you design an airplane that inherently has a stability problem that you have to augment with an artificial computer system that works behind the scenes unknowingly bringing the nose down to a pilot that isn't told about it, you have an unstable aircraft. Every pilot wants to fly inherently stable airplanes. You look at most every airplane in the, in the sky, they're inherently stable. If you point the nose up and down, they'll find their equilibrium. But in this case, at high power settings, the airplane could nose up and pitch up get into a stall situation. So they created a system, computer system, that would automatically lower the nose. Now initially they told the FAA it would only go down 0.6 degrees. It would lower the, the horizontal stabilizer 0.6 degrees. Very subtle. But when the plane was certified, the FAA ultimately found out in their subsequent research after this nonsense, the, the uh, Lion Air crash and Ethiopian Air crash, that Boeing had changed it five times greater than what they certified the airplane at. And they didn't tell the pilots of the airlines that there is this system and how to disengage the system. No pilot likes a surprise. I like knowing the airplane I'm flying. I want to know how it handles at various speeds, in high banks, in, in steep uh, turns. I want to know how it recovers from a stall. I want to know how it handles in turbulence. Those are all important things. Now, you can have what's called a runaway trim, where the airplane trim, all of a sudden, there's a servo motor, an actuator, where you've got an electrical short. It keeps pointing the nose down or up. What do you do? Well, you train for it. You know to pull the breakers. I've got two breakers marked on Alpha Army 1 that I automatically pull in the event of a runaway trim situation. But I've trained for that. I'm aware of that. It doesn't surprise me if all of a sudden I see, hey, I can't control this airplane going nose up or down. It's not responding. First thing, pull those breakers. Problem solved. But when pilots on the 737 MAX series weren't told that, there was no mention in any of the flight manuals or materials. No practicing that in a simulator, which, by the way, are $20 million uh, simulators that look, feel, sound like, and fly like the actual airplane. You can't tell the difference. It's incredible. The technology, that's one of the reasons aviation has become so safe and so reliable. The training, going into simulators. But Boeing never told anybody. So all of a sudden now, you've got this maneuvering characteristics augmentation system that will operate in the background and they don't even tell the pilot about it. That's red flag number one. Red flag number two. Boeing sold as an option a backup Angle of attack indicator. The way that the MCAS system, the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, knows whether the angle attack is too high or too low, by a little weather vane system, looks uh, right at the nose. It looks like a little wing that's out uh, on the, on the, protruding from the side of the nose, and that can measure the, the angle of attack. And they know that if the angle attack is too high, 
It can make an adjustment. But here's the problem. Boeing installed one angle of attack indicator. A second angle of attack indicator was an option. The foreign airlines, both of whom crashed, only had one angle of attack indicator. That should never have been an option made by Boeing. Why? When you put in a computer-assisted flight system to override the pilot inputs because of a design flaw with engines that are too big and too high and that has changed the complete aerodynamics of the airplane and you don't have a redundant system, what if one of these sensors isn't working? We see that all the time. There's redundancy on almost every plane and every system. You don't have one electrical system on an airplane. In most cases, you've got four. One goes, no problem. You diagnose it. The second one takes over. You can reroute things. There are different methods for handling things, but you have redundancy. Why do you have two engines? Redundancy. Why do you have two pilots? Redundancy. But when they make that an option, that, again, is negligence and criminality on Boeing's part. Because what happened was, with the Lion Air crash, and now we're finding with Ethiopian, there was a fault with the angle of attack indicator. Now, if you have two prior to takeoff, you run a checklist, and if all of a sudden you get a warning light or there's a mismatch, it comes up and says, angle of attack failure. Now you know you got to have maintenance, and now you know that bird doesn't fly. But again, a well-designed airplane does not need an artificial intelligent system to override the pilot inputs, which is exactly what Boeing did. So you have that issue. Then you have the training issue. They don't tell the pilots. They don't put it in the manuals. They don't even have a simulator. There's only one simulator in the world for the 737 MAX right now. And guess who has it? Ethio Ethiopian Airlines. But Ethiopian Airlines, just like Southwest and American and Lion Air, they did not know about this MCAS system, this augmentation system that would lower the nose. Why? Because Boeing didn't tell them. So you can't train for something that you're not aware of. Boeing deliberately hid the existence of that system because had they revealed that, every pilot transitioning from a 737 to the 737 MAX series would have been required to go into a simulator and actually rehearse or go through the maneuver and pulling the appropriate circuit breakers and disengaging the system to know how to operate that system. But Boeing didn't tell anybody, didn't tell the airlines, didn't tell the pilots. So what happens? Pilots can say, great, we can automatically, the airlines can say you don't need additional training, saving them millions. So how much did Boeing save by, telling, by not telling pilots and airlines about this MCAS system that lowers the nose? How much did Boeing save by exceeding what they filed with the FAA by five times to lower that nose? And the pilots in Ethiopia didn't know what hit them. They didn't know, and Boeing has the, the audacity to come out and say, well, these pilots should have known that it's a runaway horizontal uh, stabilizer. No, it wasn't. It was the MCAS system that was a runaway, that was, a, that was an error caused by an angle of attack indicator showing that the airplane was at a high angle of attack when it wasn't, causing the airplane to pitch down. So the pilots bring the airplane back, pitches back down again. And another fault in the Boeing MCAS system, this repeats itself over and over. That's why you had the porpoising effect. After one instance, it doesn't say, okay, we're going to kill it. 
It keeps going. And the gyrations, the porpoising gets more violent, up and down, up and down, until the 737 MAX ends up in the ground. It is unconscionable to me how Boeing could hide that information from the airlines, from the pilots, jeopardizing passengers, jeopardizing air crews, jeopardizing the very safety of the 737 MAX. And then you have the FAA that was derelict in their duty to oversee the certification by letting Boeing do self-certification in many instances. And the FAA was pressured by Boeing, get this thing going. We've got Airbus that are, that's on our tail. We've got to get these airplanes out there. And then all of a sudden now you see Airbus saying, after the Lion Air crash, well, it's a software issue. We're going we're gonna to change. We're going to modify the software. That was five months ago. Five months ago. Boeing knew damn well they only had one sensor on that 737 Lion Air and Ethiopian Air. So five months ago, they knew what the issue was. It wasn't just software. It was the fact that there was no redundant angle of attack indicator. Now, I'm explaining this in layman's terms. Because the FAA was negligent, Boeing is negligent, I believe Boeing now has a bad bird on their hands. The perception with the public on the 737 MAXs will be permanently tarnished. And just yesterday, one of the Indonesian carriers canceled an order of 45 Boeing 737 MAXs. Now, Boeing is still building the 737 MAX 8 and 9. As soon as they're off the assembly line, they're sitting in Seattle right now. And now you've got the Canadian regulatory, Aviation Regulatory Agency and the Europeans saying, now we don't trust the FAA. Before, FAA certifies it. They were the gold standard in the world. Canadian Authority, European Aviation Authority pretty much rubber stamped and said, yep, FAA did it. We'll review everything. It's good to go. Now you've got Canada and Europe saying, not so fast. We're going to look at everything and analyze everything before we let that plane on. The FAA jeopardized the public. The FAA jeopardized passengers, the safety of those airplanes. They were derelict in their duty. The FAA has gotten too cozy with these airlines and too cozy with the manufacturers. Now, look, I don't believe in excessive regulation, but I believe in reasonable and rational regulation. And if Boeing see, or if the FAA sees something that says, hey, we've got an issue with this, because I guarantee you one of the FAA Engineers would have looked at this and said, wait a minute, there's a problem. You've only got one angle of attack. You've got to make this standard, and we don't like the fact that this goes two and a half degrees down on the horizontal stabilizer, maximum 0.6, and this has to be in the training manuals. Problem averted. Planes would still be in the sky today. And for the FAA to wait so long to ground the plane, thank goodness President Trump said, I'm going to overrule the FAA and the Department of Transportation that now look like a bunch of incompetent buffoons and President Trump said, they're sitting on the ground. And I guarantee you, when he told the, talked to the, the CEO of Boeing, he wasn't happy about doing it, but he looked out for the safety of Americans and passengers worldwide. Bravo to President Trump. And a big, giant failure, an F, to the FAA and the Department of Transportation. So let's sum up here. You've got Boeing that says, we want to go out. I'll tell you what, I'll save that for the final segment because I know we're running on time. So the final and concluding segment of this edition of the Cigar Dave Show and my analysis 
of the 737 Max issues comes your way next. Check out the all-new CigarDave.com. Get info on the cigars and libations the general enjoys during the show. Get recipes from the pooch pit and drink cocktails, too. You can listen to the show on our 24-7 stream or download the latest podcast to listen to anytime. Get it all at CigarDave.com. As avid cigar connoisseurs, there is nothing like getting a brand new cigar that you have never sampled before in your hands and being able to cut, light, and enjoy that cigar. And the best way for you to get a great variety of cigars every month is to become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club. $22.95 per month gets you the latest and greatest in the world of cigars to you every month. And for March 2019, we're featuring two great cigars from Gurkha. First up, the Gurkha Marquesa. Talk about a Cuban-esque pre-embargo type cigar in look and in taste. The Gurkha Marquesa is it. A beautiful earthy Sumatra wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan fillers, a bold, well-balanced, medium-bodied and spicy cigar. Then we've got the Gurkha Ghost. If you want a Brazilian wrapped bold cigar, the Gurkha Ghost. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club right now. Go to CigarDave.com and join to get great cigars like the Gurkha Marquesa and the Gurkha Ghost. Hi, this is Rocky Patel. I'm here with my brother Nish and my cousin Nimish, and we're talking cigars. Guess what? They want me to vote on what my favorite cigar is. It's tough, but I'm going to go with the Decade. I love it. It's rich, decadent, and smooth. Rocky, you know what? The Decade's a great cigar, but the 15th anniversary, that's the cigar. That celebrated your 15 years in business, and I got to tell you, it's my favorite. You know what, Nish and Rocky, you both are wrong. The best cigar is Freedom by Rocky Patel. This cigar delivers a lot of spice, a lot of flavor, and in my opinion, it's the best cigar we make. As usual, we can't agree. But guess what? There's a great cigar for everyone. I promise you, nobody works harder than we do to make you a great quality cigar. Come visit us at RockyPatel.com. Surgeon General Warning. Cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. All right, so let me wrap it up and give you a review of everything I've talked about this hour with the issues with the Boeing 737 MAX. People think it was a software issue. It was not a software issue. It all began when Boeing rushed an airplane to market to compete with Airbus. They wanted to get a more fuel-efficient airplane. So consequently, it was an economic problem of the original 737 uh, next generation. The engines used too much fuel. They decided to install more fuel-efficient engines, bigger fans. They created the 737 MAX. Then you have an airframe problem. Because in order to use that bigger engine, you need more ground clearance, you need bigger engines. They had to move the engines forward and higher. Then it becomes an aerodynamic problem where with full power, that nose can accelerate too high. And you have to create some sort of software-assisted artificial intelligence system to bring the nose down. So they created the MCAS system, the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System. They don't tell the pilots. They don't tell the airlines. They don't have redundancy as a standard issue on the airplane. It's an option. 
And so consequently, you end up having a situation where you've got an airplane that is just aerodynamically poor, and you've got a disaster on your hands. So long story short, you've got a major issue with an airplane that forever shall remain tarnished that has caused two accidents and over 300 people to lose their lives. Boeing, totally unacceptable. Cigar Dave, the general, same Mayor Humidor always be full. Mayor Cutter, always be sharp. Mayor Ashby, extra, extra long. Semper Delictatio, always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Screw the socialists. And screw the enemies of free speech. This is Voice Talent Head, reminding you to help control the socialist liberal population. Have your socialist lib friends spayed or neutered. The Cigar Dave Show is a production of the Alpha Male Entertainment Network.